Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, I'm Clive Anderson. Welcome to My Seven Wonders. In ancient times, great pyramids, monuments and other superstructures were identified and celebrated as wonders of the world. And like seas, days of the week and deadly sins, there were always seven of them. More recent Magnificent Sevens have included other man-made marvels such as Machu Picchu and the Taj Mahal, or wonders of nature such as the Grand Canyon, the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, but what are the seven wonders you would put on your personal list? That's the question I ask my guests in this podcast. And the guest I'm asking today is the lugubrious, award-winning comedian, musician, documentary maker and writer, originally from Virginia, USA, Rich Hall. Rich has found award-winning success in the UK, as well as in America and around the world, appearing as either himself or as the even more gravel-voiced reprobate Otis Lee Crenshaw, folk singer, raconteur and good old, maybe bad old boy. Though, come to think of it, uh, are you really Otis Lee Crenshaw? Uh, you just sometimes pretend to be Rich Hall uh, for comic effect. Um, no, I am. Uh, I'm definitely Rich Hall. OK. Otis, Otis was always a, a sort of an amalgam of uh, all, all the, the relatives that I don't want to go see at Christmas. So there's, just, uh, I, uh, there's a whole section of my family that's really uh, pretty... Uh, Pretty rural, pretty backwoods. Uh, so he's drawn trailery. from life. He's he's not a fantasy figure. He's just, oh yeah. Uh, yeah, no, no. It it was it's, it was very easy for me to inhabit that character. Very mm. easy. And and the other fundamental I, question I would like to ask you is uh, because uh, you know we know you as a comedian, but you do quite a lot of music making, and uh, there's quite a lot of musical wonders in this list of seven. So uh, there's a possibility you might have gone down a musical route first, and then just been known as a musician or a singer who cracked a few jokes, or was it is it more uh, more that suiting you that you're a comedian who can also you know, throw in a decent performance. Um, yeah, I, I always, I, I strived uh, to be a comedian first and foremost and um, didn't really feel like uh, I could even attempt, I even wanted to attempt musical comedy until I got to Britain and saw that there were people who did it really well here. In America, that really wasn't the case. It was just, you'd see somebody with a guitar on stage in America and just go, oh boy, here comes, here comes a send up of American pie. It was all just, you know, yeah. pastiches of, 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 of music that people had heard. And it, it was, you know, there were a few exceptions. There always have been. But uh, it just, it was kind of a hacky thing to do in America. Then when I got over here and, uh, um, and I saw people like Bill Bailey or Tim Minchin in Australia, and I saw that there was, that it could be done, you know, and I wanted to, I just always wanted to make sure that I wrote original music. And it, that happened to be funny, but, but. I treat it as as real songs, you know. Yeah, no, I know, I know what you mean. There are, there are plenty of those sort of 
musicians who take a take a famous song and change a couple of words. And even if it's funny, you think mm, there's no real career in this because you're going to find it very difficult to be able to publish this music, perform this music uh, without having yeah. to get permission. You've got to write your own stuff or do your own stuff. Yeah. And also, um, I, you know, as, as I get older as a comedian uh, and I come out on stage and rant and all that stuff, it just starts to look more pathetic. It's it's great when you're young and and you still feel like you can your jokes can change the world, but then you reach a point where you realize you're just grandpa throwing slippers at the TV, you know, and uh, and so the the second half of the show that I'm currently doing is 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 very musical and it just breaks it up and I think it's the it's more fun for me and I think uh, I think the I think it's probably a, a, the better part of the show. Well, I, you know. I think I know a bit about you, but I've been able to revise and learn new stuff in uh, your uh, well, autobiography or your memoirs, Rich Hall, uh, Nailing It, Tales from yeah. the Comedy Frontier. Uh, I'm never certain how certain you can be to believe comedians' memoirs, because it might just be stories that are, uh, seem funny at the time. But uh, you you tell us, anyway, that you, you saw a sort of travelling um, evangelist, a preacher going around um, colleges and things, and you thought you could do a comedy version of that. That was your kind of beginning yeah. to doing performance. Is that, is that right? Is that true? That is true. It was, a, it was kind of a big inside joke. I mean, it only, it only worked at colleges, and, and the, the the whole, the real impact was that this guy, Jed Smock, would, he travels all around. He's still around. He's still around. And uh, he would just rile, and he would go to these colleges and rile the audience up just purposely and then sort of go, go you know, go into his uh, e- evangelical mode and, and he could just quote anything from the Bible. And he, he was the best, he's the best person I've ever seen at handling hecklers. And he was the first person I ever saw. You just could not beat him no matter what you yelled out he had he was ready for it and uh i just thought it'd be hilarious and a quote from a verse from the bible or something oh god he was armed with him yeah yeah and uh i just thought well how great would it be to get a crowd together and once for about the first five or six minutes they think oh another campus preacher and then you just pull the rug out from under him and they realize oh this is like a, a send-up it's a you know uh, it's a parody of a parody. And, um, that was my start. And then after about, I had about 15 minutes of that that worked. And then I just thought of other funny things to start doing. So that's how I got my, uh, that's how I got my fearlessness because when you're, when you have to build a show from scratch audience and all, you know, you can pretty much handle anything after that. And, and just one more thing before we get on to the wonders. Another bit of fearlessness that uh, you record in your book is that when you were you were performing stand-up comedy in clubs and things, but there you were thinking you might get a big break if you could get onto the David Letterman show or start working with David Letterman, who's just getting going. And so instead of doing just an ordinary set, coming on and doing yeah. some jokes, you you took the took the place by storm by by. Well, it was kind of a pizza delivery guy. You you, you started doing. Yeah. Yeah, it was, um, I was only supposed to do six minutes. There were tons of comedians on that show. I remember there was Larry David and Larry Miller and Jerry Seinfeld. And, and they were all just coming out and doing their six minutes. And they were all great. I mean, Seinfeld was the king even when I started out. He was already the, you know, he was who everyone looked up to. And I just thought, I'm just going to be another guy coming out doing jokes. And I just thought, I'll just go for it. And so I sort of broke broke the fourth wall and went right out in the audience and tried to get someone to own up to ordering a pizza. But I did it as a, uh, as a, a Vietnam vet, as a 
unhinged Vietnam vet. So he, he had this kind of story, backstory to him. And uh, the next thing I know, I got hired to, to work on a, on a talk show. It just, it was literally that, you know, that sort of venerable big break that, that people talk about. That's what happened for me. One day I was just a, you know, club comedian. The next day I was going into Rockefeller Center, which is an amazing place to, to start a career, to walk into that building and go, whoa, I work here now. Let's get going, though. We've got to do these wonders. Otherwise, well, oh, it'd yeah. be ridiculous if we didn't. So what is your first wonder? All right, my first wonder is, is uh, because I only revisited this the other day, and yeah. um, it's more wondrous. It's more of a wondrous than an actual wonder but it's it's the it's an album called trout mask replica by yes. captain beefheart and the magic band now ha have you ever heard it have you ever tried to listen to it i have i've because um, you look like someone you look like somebody who would well i'm of an age to have uh, been aware i when when you saw this on your list i i tracked it down and i started listening to it as i often do when uh, i'm sort of working i have things in the background music in the background this is not kind of music you can have in the background really and uh, concentrate on other things it I'm. I'm not. Sure. I think you're going to have to go some to convince me that this is a wonder of the world. I know it's, people respect it, but would you have? Do you play it a lot? You know, if you have. No, no. I play it. I think. Oh, so okay. So I listened to it yesterday. Yeah. Uh, and that's probably about the ninth time I've listened to it. And it's. I've, I've heard from numerous sources that it takes about six listenings for, for it to right. start to make sense. And first of all, let me just describe it. Yes, it's please. Just it is just. Assonance. Is that a word? It's assonance. Dissonance and assonance. And uh, you can't play it in a room with other people. They will, it will clear the room. Um, but there is, it's, it's basically, uh, think Tom Waits with, without any, any um, actual songwriting skills. And Captain Beefheart put this out. The, the story to me, what's wondrous isn't the album itself. It's it's that it got made at all, and uh, uh, Don Van Don Van Vliet is is Captain Beefheart, and he was uh, a sculptor. He was a sculptor. He was a even as a child, he was uh, he was he would live in his bedroom and and have his parents send him food under the door while he sculpted, and uh, claims that he never went to school, although he did. And he in high school he met Frank Zappa. They were both from Lancaster, California, and they became sort of friends. And uh, and Frank Zappa kind of mentored him through through his uh, musical career. But he wasn't really a musician. He was an he was a a sculptor, and I think he wanted to sculpt songs without being able to actually play notes or chords. So he would gather musicians together, and he'd plink out uh, notes on the piano. Uh, or he would whistle what he wanted to hear, and then they, someone would notate it, and then they'd go back and they'd put all this together. So you, you listen to this thing, and, and there's four or five different uh, tonal qualities going on. And it's just, it's, it just when you first time you hear it, because of your trained ear, you just go, what in the hell is this? And yet, you read about all these people from Johnny Rotten to, to Tom Waits himself to, to even the Beatles, who listened to it and just went, whoa, this is amazing. And I think it is amazing in the way sometimes if you see like, a, I don't know, the Watts Tower in Los Angeles or, or some somebody's, some, some contraption that somebody's put together in their backyard and you just go, this is nuts. But this is the, the musical equivalent of that.
And I, that's why I find it wondrous because I can't fathom it. I can't fathom it. I sometimes little snippets of it catch in your head because there's very, there's a lot of wordplay, but the wordplay doesn't add up to anything other than wordplay. Yeah. And well, it's it's a double album, so there's a lot of tracks on it. There's there's Hair Pie uh, Bake One, Bill's <laughs> yeah. Bill's Corpse, China Pig, My Human Gets Gets Me Blues. The the titles yeah. are wondrous in their way. Uh, yeah. But I say you wouldn't if you went up to a, you know a DJ at a I don't know any sort of gig or a party or anything. So play a bit of play a bit of uh, Captain Beefheart. Yeah, I'm not. It wasn't his only album, yeah, but, uh, but they 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 got together as a small group of musicians. They they were virtually starving at the time of making it, weren't they? They had no. Yeah, they were. Like. They were living on soybeans. They were trapped in a house. Uh, Beefheart. He had that same work ethic as Frank Zappa. I mean, you look at both those guys. And you think they must have done a lot of drugs, but they did no drugs. Uh, yeah, but but he he was a taskmaster master and so was um beefheart and he would trap the, he'd make these guys work for 14 16 hours they rehearsed they had to re- they rehearsed the entire album for like seven months and then went in and recorded it in six hours and then uh beefheart came in the next day and, and overdubbed his vocals and of course it was done in six hours because it's you, you would listen to it and just go i you know i could get six kids from around the neighborhood, give them it, put instruments in their hands and record it and make this album. But sometimes, every once in a while, when I listen to it, I, it does kind of break through, in a in a weird kind of way. And I realize I'm I'm not you can't compare it to anything you've heard before. I was going to say, can we can we think of or can you think of a way to describe? It's not it's not punk. It's it's before post 1969. It's yeah. not. I mean, 1969 is sometimes it's quite a big year for music so if you were looking for a wonderful record from that year you might have gone with uh, Abbey Road from the Beatles uh, yeah. I, think the, I think the Stones had an album out um, I've forgotten which, which it is but it's uh, it was a big year for music um, do you, <laughs> but do you think of of all the records in your record collection this this is the the, the wonder of the world for your first oh, wonder it's no god <laughs> n- no 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 <laughs> It is a wonder of the world, but it's, yeah. it's not. It's not my mo- the most wondrous album. It's one of the worst albums I've ever heard. That's why it's. That's why I consider it a wonder because I can't fathom it any more than I can fathom game theory or uh, chess. I know there's something there, but I can't access it, and that that's what leaves me with a sense of perplexion and awe. So you might listen to it while also reading James Joyce or something, just to just to sort of get to get as many of your synapses going in your brain to try and make sense of it all. I, I think I think your brain would explode if you tried to do that. <laughs> either either of those, you know, oh. either 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 James Joyce or uh, Captain B. I I, oh. I suppose that Captain B. Part might very well be the the Finnegan's Wake of of. Uh, of music, you know. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll uh, I take that guide to this. You say you need to listen to it six times. I think you said before you kind of get. I think I'm, I think I'm maybe uh, three or four times away from fully understanding it. Then, so I'll have to to go away and get up to speed on uh, on that. Anyway, it's your first wonder, Trout Mask Replica by Captain Beefheart. And there's a picture of him with a with a fish mask on. Uh, I think it's him. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure it's a trout though, but uh, never mind. It's uh, it, it's it's a it's a fishy thing. So okay, excellent. That's your first wonder. But the second wonder is is we're still in the world of music, uh, perhaps more conventionally in the world of music with your second wonder. Okay, now this truly is the 
uh, the holy grail of, of um, modern musical instruments, which is the, uh, the Martin D28 um, acoustic guitar. Right. Preferably, uh, specifically, the, what they call a, a bone or a, a herringbone. Yeah. Because it's got a, a herringbone um, trim around the the side of it, and um, it, it, anywhere between 1933 and 1944, those guitars are astounding to hold in your hand, to play, to listen to. They're, the, you know, I guess it's the Stradivarius of, of acoustic guitars. Yeah, and uh, I, I I'm proud to say I own one. <laughs> uh, I play it on stage. I don't hang it up on a wall. I use it on tour, and uh, I'm not a I'm not a very good guitarist. I try my best. I can hand you know I can handle my own. But when you hold, when you play that, it just makes everything easier and sound better. And yeah. it's an astounding work of craftsmanship that they hold up. They've held up this long, you know, almost eighty years now. Well, and, well, you uh, mentioned uh, you mentioned Stradivarius in passing. There, people try and work out what it is about Stradivarius uh, violins and a, f- a few other makers and cellos and things. The, sp- the type of wood that they had access to and lack of, they didn't know where it came from. But but since this is only pre-war, uh, is, yeah. is it possible to know and to work out what it is about those particular guitars? Why can't you know? Would could you not make one exactly the same nowadays? Is, is that not possible? <laughs> Um, they did, yeah. Martin does make the, uh, a D twenty eight now. That that's a nineteen thirty seven replica. I think it's called the nineteen thirty seven D twenty eight. But it's not. You can't get that wood anymore because it's Brazilian rosewood, which is now yeah. um, illegal to own. Uh, and then the the, the sides, the, all the the tone the tone woods that they used back then, they they don't use now. And the the way that they were made and braced on the inside. Uh, was those guys don't those those guys and and women i suppose don't uh they're not around anymore and then consequently they went off to war and so um i see that's why a a pre-war martin d28 is is ideal because they just had better craftsmanship well, I, I know a lot of guitarists get quite, obs- and their fans get quite obsessed with not just uh, acoustic guitars, but electric guitars as well. And, you know, this is the one that was used. In, uh, and uh, does, does the ordinary member of the audience, uh, uh, do they, and by which I mean do we, uh, can, can we tell the difference uh, really between these various instruments? It, do you have to be really expert to, to notice the, the, the sound? You know, no, you, no, I, I don't think. Um... I don't think anybody could could actually listen to an acoustic guitar and tell whether it's a Gibson or a Martin or, or any other any other brand. But the people who play them certainly know. And uh, if 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 you played one for a while, you you would be able to hear you would be able to tell that you know all almost all bluegrass players play either D18s or D28s, and um, so it's it's made kind of for 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 picking, for bluegrass picking, but also um, strumming. Lots of country musicians, session musicians will swear by a, a D28. 
So that's and that's your kind of music, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Do, do you like um, I'd call it I don't know folk music, Americana, bluegrass, whatever? There, there's generally a sort of a well, there's often a story in it. There's a telling of a story, a sad story, quite often. But that fits well with the, what you do in comedy, which is also quite often telling stories and. They can be sad as well because that therein lies some some humour. But uh, so so did you? Was that just everybody played uh, that kind of music around you when you were growing up? So you were almost bound to get some skills on. The, well, you play what? Play guitar, keyboards, and anything else? Yeah, you I started I started out playing keyboards, but I got tired of dragging that thing around. So uh, then I I switched to guitar after I kind of put Otis to bed, and um, so I was I've only become an a, a astute at playing the guitar in the last 10 or 12 years so um i'm way be I'm, i was way behind you know i didn't I, I didn't grow up playing music at all uh uh i grew up listening to a lot of music and i did play piano but but um not i didn't take it seriously but of course when you grow up when you grow up in the south that's you know blues country folk um Southern rock and roll, the Allman Brothers, all that kind of stuff. That's what, that's what's on the radio. That's what you hear in clubs and bars. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty good to come from a region that's, that's, it has its own music. You know, there aren't a lot of places like that. I suppose you could say that of Ireland to a certain degree, Scotland, I think, um, there's not that that sense of you know there's Chicago blues there's New Orleans blues there's country music there's Western music so that's one of the great things about America is that it has a very strong regional influences when it comes to music and and right at home did you have a, a father or an uncle or an aunt or somebody who showed you how to play the guitar or was that just mm -mm. just with friends how, how did no my next my next door neighbor in Montana taught me how to play guitar he was a he was a rancher and uh uh, choir leader in his church and he um, he brought me over his guitar one day and said just sit down and start and learn this and this and this and that was kind of my start that was only back in like uh, the late 80s so oh right so it wasn't when you were a little kid uh, oh god no nah, no nobody nobody in my family was that musical my dad was uh, he had some pretty eclectic tastes I, uh, I distinctly remember him uh I can't coming home one day and he was like a teenager playing this song over and over and over again. And the song is, um, uh, a different drum by Linda Ronstadt and the stone ponies. And this was about, this had to be like 69, maybe 69, 68, 69. And, uh, he just, he just freaked out. And it was, it wasn't the kind of music that he listened to. He liked Roger Miller and Frank Sinatra and, and, uh, Duke Ellington and, and, um, Johnny Cash. But, this was this was like completely accessible, like uh, it's a great great song, and that I uh, I was just kind of surprised that that that's what that's um, got stuck in his head, and he played it over and over for days and days and days. Yeah, don't worry, I can hear a dog every now in the background. We'll we'll, oh, we'll yeah. with that. I think. What sort of that's dog is Sarge. that? That's a Sarge. He's a Boston Terrier. Oh right. Okay. Yeah. Very good. We've covered two musical wonders for a moment. Your, your third wonder 
uh, you've just mentioned Montana. So what is your third wonder? Well, it's the Yellowstone River, Clive. Yeah. It's the Yellowstone. And um, uh, it, it is a natural wonder. It's, it's uh, just an astounding river. Just... I think a lot of people will have heard of uh, you know, Yellowstone National Park and have a rough idea of what the scenery looks like, but it's the river itself that you focus on. Is it because it's a, got a lot of fish or because it looks be <laughs> lo lo beautiful because it you know, meanders in a lovely racing white water river? D describe the, the Yellowstone all, River. All those, both of those things you just said are true. Yes, yeah. there are lots of fish in it. It does meander. It meanders through various valleys. It comes out of the Yellowstone Park and it flows north and then uh, meets up with the Missouri. And uh, so it's undammed. It's an un completely undammed, protected river. Yeah. Uh, but it's uh, very amenable to, um, to to any sort of outdoor activity. So I um, kayak a lot. I fish. I, it's just, a, it's, it's, there's a million different things that happen when you go down to the river. And mm. uh, with, without getting all kind of, you know, metaphorical or anything else, it's just... Um, to stand on that river and just watch it go by is just kind of puts everything into your into perspective. You you mentioned your book going there with uh, your wife Karen, who's from uh, England, uh, and yeah. uh, showing her the river. And I think she the way of I proposed to her this. on the river. Hmm? I proposed to her on that river. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, and she obviously said yes. And she so thought that, I was an so idiot. That's a, hap that's a happy memory. Um, yeah, I, I rather more trivially was noticing that she managed to catch a fish or two uh, when you showed her the river. You know, when you're supposed to wait, you know, days, weeks, years before you start doing that. But she, she had oh, success yeah. straight away. Yep, yep. Beginner's luck. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, I, I don't know if, if you've ever uh, been to Yellowstone Park, um, which happens well, to be my my favorite park. Yeah. But it, it's an astounding, just yes, astounding place to be. So I live about two hundred yards up. Uh, away from the river and um sadly this summer uh few about three weeks ago it, it flooded really badly like washed away some houses on the river and you might have seen pictures of that on the news and uh so it's pretty much uh um won't be there won't there won't be any fishing on it this summer uh there probably won't be much boating or, or um, canoeing or kayaking or anything else because of so much debris in the river so it's it, it kind of makes you just realize that something you you take for granted, you know, and that you think you're fortunate to 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 live near, and then suddenly it just turns, and you go, "Whoa, wow, this is this is nature at its full rage." And uh, of course, you know, next year it'll probably be back to normal again, and just flowing along. But it can it can be pretty uh, pretty devastating. So if I got this right, you live a good deal of the time in England, but you um, yeah. you mentioned your book buying a, a ranch, a farm, a house, or whatever, <laughs> in <laughs> as a surprise for your wife. Yeah, not really as a surprise for me. Yeah, yeah I had I had to talk her into it. Yes, <laughs> I did a very stupid thing. It's actually a story in the book. Yeah, a very as any as anybody can tell you to 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 buy a house, any kind of property without telling your wife is, uh, woo. Yeah. You got your work cut out for you. Yeah. It, it all worked out. 
Yeah. Well, but Yellowstone Park, you were asking about, I haven't been there. I, I, I do have a, an ambition to go to those uh, American uh, national parks. They sound fantastic. And Yellowstone Park I'm particularly interested in because they've, they've reintroduced uh, wolves there, do you, do you, which has a profound effect on the landscape. Uh, do you have anything to do with the wolves or do you hide away from them or are you an enthusiast for them? Uh, hey, I'm all for I'm all for the wolves, but um, uh, most ranchers and farmers would would differ. They mm. they appreciate the wolves, but the wolves are supposed to stay in the park. But of course, they're wolves, so they don't. Yeah. So then, when they when they come out of the park, which is not fenced in, it's just mm. you know one minute you're not in the park, and then you step over this invisible boundary, and you're in the park. The wolves don't know that, so sometimes they venture out, and mm. then. Uh, that's not good for them, but yeah, they're beautiful animals. Yes, I've, I've, I've seen, I've run into them now and then in the park, along with buffalo, and yeah. uh, it's, it's. I, I find it hilarious that uh, at least I think it's already happened three times this year. It's, some idiots go up to buffalo, stand right in front of them, and try to take a picture, and the next thing you know, I'll <laughs> step about twenty feet in the air, yes. and then they make the news, and people in Montana just kind of go, well. What did you think was going to happen? It's a buffalo. Yeah. It's a two-ton animal with horns, and he wants to be left alone. But people think, oh, they're so docile, and they just go right up to him. One woman picked up a calf and put it in the back of her car because she thought it was orphaned. And then, then, sadly, they had to put the thing down because it had been in contact with humans. So it's it's like, don't, if you go to Yellowstone Park, enjoy the river, but don't, don't touch the critters. Don't touch them. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Well, next, yeah, next topic. Let's, let's go to that next, next wonder. Well, of course, you know, you would probably expect most of your guests to, 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 you know, breach the literary world at some point in one of their wonders. Uh, I'm sure a lot of your guests have mentioned some great book that they read. And, uh, so I'm going to go with it. I'm going to go with that. But, um, when I think about the, the book that has influenced me the most, you know, I, yeah, I'd love to say Finnegan's Wake or, or, you know, uh, staggering work of genius or whatever that is, which I never finished or Thomas Pynchon, but it's, um, it's a very simple book called Catcher in the Rye and Catcher in the Rye. I, unlike Trout Mask Replica, I do go back and reread it all the time because it never gets, there's something new in it. Every time I read it as I get older and, um, it's, it's an amazing book because, uh, 
for the fact that... Have you read Catcher in the Rye? I certainly have. I, I don't know why you're being slightly apologetic about uh, selecting this as a wonder, because I would say in this country, and I'm sure in America too, it's a book that almost everybody, I think, uh, would have been introduced to at school. And uh, even though the sort of some of the slang terms change over the years, you can yeah. immediately recognise the true voice of uh, of the teenager. Um, right. In, in sort of agony, really, in the... the uh, uh, Holden Caulfield and Rater and that. You, you, he is going through a, a really hard time, but it's recognisable to, I would think, almost everybody who's ever grown up. Yeah, and but it was written in like the, the 40s. Mm. And that's what, and when I first read it, probably in the early 70s, I suppose, um, it still just sang, rang, it was so relevant to um, to modern day life as it was to, at the time it was written. And it still is when you go back and read it now. And when, when you read Catcher in the Rye as a teenager, it's very hard. It's one of those books that you come away and it's and you can't get that voice out of your head, that tone, uh, which is very sarcastic, very uh, anti-education. I mean, it's about a kid who basically drops out of school and goes to New York City for the weekend. Nothing really, Nothing really happens. There's no... There's no huge plot twist or turns. It's just about a guy who just says the word phony shows up so much. And it's there's there's a moment where basically uh, the title refers. Uh, he's he's misread the title, I think. I, I forget where Catcher of a Body Sees a Body Coming Through the Rye. I forget what that's from. But he sees. It's, it's, it's a Robert himself. Burns. Po- it's a Robert Burns poem, and it's right. Uh, yes, it's a body yeah. coming through the rye. He he's, he misremembers yeah. it's catching. So he's yeah. You, you going to explain? Yeah, the, yeah. Yeah. Well, he, he's just between his teachers, his parents, and the various New York Manhattanites that he comes across. He just ultimately sees kind of some kind of solace and and imagining being in a field and just uh, of rye. And all these kids are just running through it. And his job is to keep them from going off a cliff. And it's a, such an a amazing childlike image of, you know, of that is what, that is all he really, that, that would be his idea of happiness, you know, yes. just to be looking after kids. And it's very sympathetic toward, you know, young kids and, and, and his younger sister, uh, Phoebe, I think it's Phoebe. And, uh, but when you come away after reading that book, and you can read it in two days, you know, mm. when you come away, it, it, I think it probably made me a comedian. It certainly gave me that, that, that sense of viciousness and, and sarcasm uh, that you have to have as a comedian and not take, and, and to look at everything and question it. And that's what, yeah. the, and that's what Catcher in the Rye does. And I think it, you know, I didn't close the book and say, oh, I'm going to be a comedian, it, but, I think it, it put me, it sent me in that direction. And it, uh-huh. uh, then I showed it to my, my daughter read it, I don't know, about three years ago when she was 14. And she kind of, I think there's a bit of Salinger in her now, you know? Yeah. So it is, it's, it has a very profound effect on, on, on some people. Some, some people have read and go, yeah, I don't get it. Nothing happened. But <laughs> yes. Everything happened. But he's cracking up, and he's just full of lots of little incidents. And he's he's fl- failing most of his subjects, but he's very good at English. So, so yeah. one of his you know roommates or whatever it is says, "Oh, can you just knock off a bit of work for me?" But put a few punctuation marks a bit wrong because otherwise they'll know it's you. And it's, yeah, it's, Edgar, he's so, was, I, yeah, I think yeah. that was Edgar Marcellus. I think that was that character's name. 
<laughs> but uh, he, um, the, the, it's because J.D. Salinger was such a, a, a renowned recluse, you know, and never really talked about the book. But I think um, I've read a lot of dissertations about it, and it's it's very likely that that what prompted him to write the book was um, trauma, was traumatic, you know, post traumatic stress disorder uh, from uh, World War II. Yeah. And he was he was pretty uh, he had a pretty rough time, Salinger, during the war, uh, and was stationed um, in England, and had uh, when um, there was an incident on the south coast of England. You probably know this. I forget where it was, but uh, it was a training program with American soldiers. It went wrong, and the soldiers, uh, right. the American so the, sol the American soldiers got killed. About yeah. maybe a dozen or so. Uh, I think it was, a pre, was that a pre-D-Day uh, uh, landing thing? They had a yeah, yeah. They were they were practicing yeah. the D-Day landing, and yeah. uh, something went wrong, and Salinger was sent, had to go down and, and um, I think sort of cl help clean up the mess, mm -hmm. and that profounded you know that that affected him profoundly, and uh, and I think that when he came back and wrote this book, uh, that was at the, that was at the root of it, which of course yeah. you'd never get in the book. But, no, but it but it obviously opened up his ability to just say what's in his in his mind at that point and capturing what's yeah. in a lot of people's minds. Yeah, he's a yeah. he was a, you say he was a recluse. He was also very protective of his work. He didn't want it filmed or or done in any other way. After an initial discussion, he, he was he he um, protected that very firmly. I presented a program on the television, which was about. The, people's favorite books and they were people advocating their books and they did i think it was i think ruby wax did this, this particular one saying how she she loved it as well and they put yeah. in a just a sort of somebody speaking something from the book um dressed roughly as you know uh that you know holden caulfield would look like and yeah. um and there was a big you know you know, argument about that. That was, you know, put, you know, imagining it and representing it in a theatrical way, and they, they had a huge sort of uh, bust off over that. It wasn't strictly my responsibility. I was uh, just introducing things, but I think it was all settled relatively amicably in the end. But he, even that, even just sort of somebody saying, "I think this is a very good book and should be the best book," you know, our favourite book, uh, he found uncomfortable to see somebody putting on a costume and speaking his words. <laughs> well, well, there it yeah. is. Yeah. OK, well, let's go on to, I would suggest, something a bit more obscure as a wonder of the world for a good many of us, but that's not to undervalue it. Your your next wonder, please. Uh, PTO. Right. And, and here's normally where I, means... I know you... And what, does it, what does it normally mean? <laughs> PTO, PTO means please turn over. It means it's at oh, the bottom right. of the page to make oh, sure yeah, yeah. You, you there's a bit more written on the other side or uh, keep going to the end of the chapter, uh, keep turning over the end of the document, you've got to sign it before you send in your licence or whatever it is. But uh, but what does it mean in your... Well, Clive, uh, your, now, now your, your farmers and, and your ranchers who listen to your podcast will, will know right away that, that PTO means uh, stands for power takeoff. Right. And uh, without it, there's no, uh, there's no food. There, there, there's no... Fence posts. There's no uh, grain. There's no. There's the power takeoff is the part of the tractor that operates the machinery. Okay. It's it's the shaft at the at the back of the tractor that turns mm. at, at various RPMs and consequently runs the mowers. 
runs uh, post hole diggers, runs any kind of um, almost any kind of uh, um, appendage to a to a tractor. Mm. And without it, everybody's digging holes. The world would be digging holes with a shovel and yeah. uh, picking um, and cutting grass with a scythe. And it's what keeps the agricultural world going. Yeah. And all somebody did was think, oh, let's hook this drive shaft up to an engine and then spin it really fast. And then you can plug anything into it. Yeah, I just find. So that, when did I they just, when did I, they I, do that? How, how long have we had a, a PTO attached uh, uh, tractors? Oh God, Clive! I don't know. I didn't. I didn't do any research on this. Probably uh, some. Probably I'd say the late eighteen hundreds. Somebody came up with some kind of version of it. Yeah, no, but, I think uh, I think you're I think you're right. I just wanted to establish this is some a long established, well established bit of mechanical kit. Uh, that's yeah. been around. I think. I mean, so many things were invented at the end of the nineteenth century, right at the beginning of the twentieth, to do with the internal combustion engine, diesel engines, petrol engines, gears, and, they, and uh, from, I, th- I saw somebody saying uh, from about nineteen ten onwards, all they've been doing is trying to think of intermittent wash wipe or a way of yeah. unrolling and unrolling their windows. None of which is yeah. vital. And this is obviously another thing. And I, I must confess to being blissfully ignorant that somebody had had to come up with this special invention and it's it's still going strong it's still the thing you need on your tractor as you say to it's, dig your fence uh, yeah and it, to be honest it really hasn't changed if, if you had a tractor from 1928 if you had a john deere or a farm off tractor from 1928 yeah. uh the attachment is going to be pretty much the same it's a shaft, and you gotta you gotta drag whatever machinery you have up to it. Reach up under there. Try not to get mm. your fingers cut off. It's incredible. Yeah. It's it's very bulky and and burdensome. But um, once you learn how to do it, I, mm. I remember first time I learned how to hook something up to a PTO. I just felt like a real. I just felt like the the agricultural world had opened up to me. Yes. And if I if anybody ever if I ever saw someone broken down on the side of the road. At least I know how to help them. That's why I find it a wondrous thing. Right. So this 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 locks you into your country um, music and country living, your place in Montana. I'm sure you've got <laughs> an old tractor up there, so you can um, drag your fish home from the river or whatever it is that you need to uh, to cope with. No, the bad no, weather. there's there, there's there's no fish dragging uh, <laughs> device for tractors, as far as I know. Oh no. Uh, no, you still gotta. You have to put the fish back, you know. Yes. Yeah, you're not yeah. allowed to drag fish. Not allowed to okay. drag no, fish. Okay, no, I wasn't but implying you were doing anything wrong. I was just uh, imagining uses for this uh, bit of kit for you. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I did go one day, I, I had to change it three times one day. I had to change it from a, a, a mower to a post hole digger to a um, trailer, trailer hitch. Mm. So there, there you go. That's, yeah. that's, my, that's my claim to... Uh, that's my greatest day. That's my greatest agricultural day ever. <laughs> Your manly life in the in the in the outback. No, that's Australia, isn't it? The the, the prairie. Look, you know, some people they like to shoot off a AR fifteen or something. They go, ooh, yeah, I did that. But yeah. when you've hooked up a, when you've hooked up a PTO, that is a skill that yes. that stays with you the rest of your life. And sooner or later, somebody's going to need me to do it. They're going to need yes. me. They're gonna, I'm going to get a phone call, even in London, and there's some guy up the street. You know, trying to cut mm. down a tree, he's going to go. Hey, uh, can you help me with this? Sometimes it takes two people to do it. Yeah. 
It's it's great when you can do something when you're on top of something. Um, yeah. Uh, just the other night, there I was on I was on the train, a tube train, and there were a couple they would they had got on the wrong train, and they couldn't quite work out to do, and I knew what to do. I could tell yep. them what they had to do, and I thought, right, yeah, I'm on top of this. I have learnt something in life. I I know how the London Underground system works, and which yeah, tra- yeah. <laughs> well, those are the things that be- those are the things that become important in your life, you know. Okay, look, we'll, we've uh, we've dealt with PTO. I've learned what what PTO stands for. I'm going to be looking out for it the next time I'm near a tractor, which I am from time to time, without ever realising I was looking at something important. So, uh, your sixth wonder. We've got to rattle on. We're going to run out of time. The, the, your sixth All right. wonder. All right, we're back to music, Clive. We're back to music. Uh, and th- th- this is one of those uh, moments equivalent to standing on the Yellowstone where I, I've stood at stood inside the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville, and yeah. which is the cathedral, the cathedral of country music, and um, felt like, wow, this is where it's so much has happened in that that building. Yeah. So this is, is Grand uh, Old Grand still, Old Opry, is is that the term to use? It's I know. the original home of the Grand Old Opry. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. See, there's there's two Grand Old Opry's now. There's there's the the one the original one in Ryman where they do. Um, they do some shows and then there's Opryland, which is a horrible, horrible theme park on the outside of Nashville, which is what most people go to now when they think they've gone to the Grand Ole Opry. But the real Grand Ole Opry is still at Ryman Auditorium. Uh, yeah. Not every weekend, but a lot of weekends in the summer. And it's also used for all kinds of other uh, Americana and country music events. And um, the most astounding show I've ever seen was at the Ryman Auditorium. And if I even try to describe it to you, you'll go, what? But it was uh, during what they called Chet Atkins days, which is a tribute to the guitarist Chet Atkins. And uh, so I didn't know what I was going to. Uh, Someone gave me a ticket and I went in and on stage is Mark Knopfler from Dire Straits. And I'm thinking, am I at the right show? This is, is this, is this the, what's, what's Mark Knopfler got to do with the Grand Ole Opry? Well, and eventually he's, got a, he's it all, a great it, guitarist, isn't he? So yeah, and, and of course, he, 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 his style, his mentor was Chet Atkins. So after, but that's not the guy you think you'd see hosting a show. He was the host. He wasn't just a guest. He was the host. He was the MC of the show. And he says, so he plays a couple of songs, he played a couple of Chet Atkins songs. Um, and then he says, okay, uh, I want to bring out um, our first guest. And he brings out John Prine. All oh, right who recently passed away with great songwriter. So now I'm like, whoa, okay. Then he brings out um, uh, the guy from the Eagles. He's with the Eagles now, Vince Gill, Vince Gill. So they're all playing Chet Atkins songs. Mark Knopfler is astounding. Uh, the audience is really into it. Uh, goes The show goes on. I'm really settling into it. Uh, he says, okay, I'm going to bring, uh, now please welcome Chris Christopherson. So, Chris Christopherson comes out and starts singing Sunday Morning Coming Down. Uh, and halfway through that song, Johnny Cash walks out and says, uh, looks at the crowd. He'd been in the hospital with something. He just turned, he walks up to the mic and he says, I'm not dead yet. And he and, and Chris do a duet of Sunday Morning Coming Down. And it's just one thing, one astounding musician after another. And then, <laughs> so then, uh, we're getting toward like an hour and a half in. And then Mark Knopfler just says, all right, uh, I guess I'd get run out of town if I didn't play some of these songs. And then he brings out Dire Straits. 
and they and it turns into a Dire Straits concert at the Grand Ole Opry. And you can tell, and, and some people in the crowd are looking around going, what in the hell? What? This is, but there were a lot of people like me were going, wow, yeah. okay. These aren't even American. What are they doing here? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it was, it just blew me away. It was mm. just, I've, I've also just walked in there and I think we've filmed there before making documentaries when you're in there all by yourself and the acoustics are just astounding. You walk yeah. up on the stage and just say anything and it just comes back at you. It was built. All right. It's a, it's a church of music. And uh, if you ever get a chance, if you ever get a chance to stand in it, because just all the people who have stood on that stage before you. And you've, you've st- stood on that stage. Have you, have you done a, you know, a, a performance there, a concert there, a, um, a, a comedy tour even there with plus music? Would, would, would that ever happen? Um, I've stood on the stage, n- not played in front of an audience. No, no. no. Someday, someday mm. I will. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you will. I, I was, I was assuming you, uh, you had already, but that's. Uh, that, I assume that's why it was a wonder to you. But you, you're, you're basically approaching it as a member of the audience, as a lover of that, yeah, that sort of music, yeah. Yeah, just wood, you know, wooden rows. You go over, you get a beer, you come back, you sit down, and anything that comes out, and you know, it could be the hackiest country act, but somehow, in that particular environment, you just go, oh, okay, you've. You can tell yeah. anybody who who stands on that stage and plays is thrilled beyond belief to yeah. be there, you know. And they're, they're top of their game as a result. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't think of maybe Carnegie Hall for classical music or something, but there aren't many places where this is where you can truly say this is the cathedral of this particular type of music. Ryman yeah. Ryman Auditorium is. Yeah. What What about your own performing career? Where Where would you say is the the place you've performed and thought, right, this, you know, I can't do, I can't do better than this. This is just fantastic performing here. Oh, I, well, I'd like to say uh, the um, Sydney Opera House, but, but um, in fact, I think this is one of the, cha- yeah, this is one of the chapters in my book. It, it was mm. awful. It was absolutely <laughs> awful. They try, mm. uh, uh, read the book. There's a whole yeah. chapter in the book about me, um, Doing an Otis show at at, uh, at Sydney Opera House and it going horribly, horribly wrong. Yeah, like I wasn't fight. really trying to like, push you into telling a story about uh, <laughs> uh, going horribly wrong. I was. <laughs> there was, yeah, that would have. I mean, you know, I can say I played it. Uh, mm. My poster was out front, but uh, it did not. It was not conducive to comedy. The, yeah. <laughs> the Sydney Opera House is not conducive to comedy. Not this particular yeah. night. It wasn't. Oh, all right. So, uh, all right. We're, we're straying away from your wonder anyway, which is uh, uh, there in Nashville, um, the, the Ryman Auditorium, the the original home of the Grand Ole Opry, and they they were kind of getting rid of it, which and, and moving on. But uh, I think people who are fans of it said, no, you can't pull it down. You've got to keep it. Yeah. For, no. For... Yeah. Too many. I mean, there would have been so many musicians who came to to rescue that place. You know. Mm. Uh, it's it's a large scale equivalent of the uh, of the um, half moon in Putney, which is under the same constant threat of being demolished. Yes. But right. somebody always steps up to help it out. Okay, the half moon in Putney and the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville. I, I guess they'll be happy to be coupled together, twinned uh, yeah. around the world. What about thing about comedy? Is that there's you can be successful when you tell a joke to one audience. Or do a bit, you know, five minutes and it goes a storm. 
You do it in yeah. front of another audience on another day. Maybe you're in a worse mood. Maybe it's a different audience. Maybe there's some, yeah. and it can and it crashes and burns. Which in yeah. a way that a playing a song is never going to be that high and then that low because you're always going to be a competent singer or or a guitarist at whatever level you are. Whereas doing a joke, you can go from being the funniest guy in the room and you've got a microphone and everything to. What's he doing? I, my mate tells jokes better than that. And and that happens, I think, to almost everybody, just not too often um, once you get going. Yeah. The, the only thing I can say is that you get better at not bombing as, as you go along. Yeah. You And you get better at um, at reading reading an audience. You know, if yeah. I'm, I, I got to go back to Edinburgh uh, this year for two weeks. I haven't been in six years. And I know I'm going to do some of those late night shows. And as soon as yeah. you walk out, you know what I'm talking about. You walk yeah. out, it's just a, a sweat pit, and you walk out, and this is not, this is not the same crowd that paid to come see you earlier. These are just yeah. people out at two in the morning, and they can be, they can just be violent, you know. And yeah. it, I'm just much. I'll do my best, you know, to uh, to work to 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 use the, the to take the kind of general atmosphere and shape it to to what I'm doing, you know. If you can't read the room, you're going to die. You're going to die. But you get, but you, but you learn to read rooms, and you learn to, and as 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 you get better and more um, established, you also don't have to choose those kind of environments. They, you know, they can they can still happen. You can walk into a snake pit by accident, but more than likely you go, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing that. You've got one more wonder to go, and this is a this is an intriguing one, and an eye opener to me. It's your your last wonder. Yeah, I, I my my last wonder is uh, an address. It's um, thirty nine seventy Spencer Street, Las Vegas, Nevada. Thirty nine seventy right. Spencer Street. Yeah, uh, you can go into Google that right now, and you'll see it's it actually comes as, as a real estate listing. I've, and, I've done exactly that, and of course, when I when I first saw this, it was all I had was that address. I thought, well, I wonder what happened to you there. Did you did you meet a girl? Did you win a fortune at, at some sort of uh, poker game in Las Vegas? Is it the most beautiful building that you've driven past, or whatever it is? And uh, but it's 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 none of those things. But it's more important, more bizarre than all of those it, things. So yeah, um, thirty nine seventy Spencer Street is. Uh, is in a just a suburban looking neighborhood in uh, Las Vegas. Uh, there's a house on it that just looks like you know your regular stucco and red tile roof, mm-hmm. typical kind of desert house. Uh, you go in the front door. Uh, there's an elevator on your left. If you go into that elevator and take it down, you come out to a complete, the most astounding underground house you can imagine. Mm-hmm. I don't mean like a bunk, a nuclear bunker. I mean this is a complete underground house with uh, um, in, in, interior lighting that that you know um, come the sun comes up in the morning, it goes down around you know depending on uh, time of year, uh, late stay, stays light later and later. You walk mm-hmm. out around the outside of the house. It's a it's a very fifties looking house. It's got you know one of those old yellow and black tiled kitchens in it everything yeah. is kind of retro from it's like a good housekeeping house from the, from the 50s right and uh 
It's but it occupies a huge amount of space underground. It's yeah, not just yeah. one I think it's house about, size. Yeah, it's like a four-bedroom house with doors that open up and go out onto, onto a fake turf lawn. It's got a swimming pool. It's got a disco. It's got giant boulders and trees around it. Um, and as you travel around the outside on the wall, the outside supporting wall, you're in a different country. They, they painted all these scenes from different countries. So basically, you can travel around the world. You can walk out one bedroom and you're in New Zealand. You walk out another bedroom and you're in Switzerland. And um, it's uh, the story behind it is the, the, the first time I went there, my, my I was working in Las Vegas, and my friend says, "Hey, let's go, uh, let's go meet Muhammad Ali's daughter." My, uh, it was a friend of mine named Harris, and he was he was uh, he knew Muhammad. Muhammad Ali used to come to the comedy store in uh, L.A. a lot, and yeah. um, and Harris got got to know him, and he got to know his daughters. So we go and knock on this door, and I think I'm going to meet May May Ali. Her name is May May, and uh, yeah. she was going to law school at UNLV. And uh, so we knock on, I think, of course I want to meet Muhammad Ali's daughter. So she opens the door. She is the caretaker. She's become the caretaker for this place. She lives upstairs. Yeah. And uh, so we talk for a while, and I'm going, oh, it's that's nice. And she says, come on in. And we never even went into the, her, the living room of the main house. She just says, here we go. And we go into this elevator and we come down and it opens up and you're in this underground, this astounding underground dwelling. And, uh, there was an 82 year old guy living there named Tex. And, uh, he says, come on, I'll show you around. So we walk around and then we end up in the main bedroom and he opens up this closet and it's all, uh, it's all the dresses. It's it's uh, all the costumes from Cleopatra that belong to Liz Taylor. It's Liz Taylor's wardrobe in this guy's house underground in Las Vegas, named Tex, who is a sports writer, and who who Muhammad befriended a long time. He used to write great articles about him, and he's living there. And I said, "Where did this come from?" And he says, "Well, I was married to the uh, Avon lady, the, the woman whose husband." started the Avon products and his yeah. name was I think his name was Gerald Henderson he was fascinated with with underground houses he built it back in the 50s during the you know yeah I guess he was worried about nuclear bombs so he yeah. built this mansion underground then he dies the uh, his wife is the, the cosmetic heiress she marries Tex then she dies and now Tex is living <laughs> <laughs> underground he's 81 years old he, and he's got a caretaker who's who's one of Muhammad, Muhammad Ali's old boxing yeah. sparring partners he looks after Tex and uh, and like every every step of this tour something there's something else what yeah. what the what mm. and um, I've since gone back three or four times and I, I think we, we filmed a scene in a documentary I made about red menace about nuclear about you know the cold war mm. and we went back and and now it's um a real estate agent came in and and, and let us film there and all of elizabeth taylor's stuff was gone and tex had, had moved on this was two years ago tex had passed on and now the house is up for sale for like 15 million or something uh I think you're overstating it i've i've got it in front of me here it says 5.9 million oh 5.9 okay so that's that's well within. If you sold your place in Montana and maybe <laughs> I don't know, you maybe got a nice flat in London, you'd probably get five point nine million together straight away. But how does it work? Can you can you survive down there? For that's always the weakness of these these survival places because you eventually need food, water, oxygen. 
And if, yeah, well, if there is nuclear war above you, you all that's going to get contaminated. So have you got have they got big stores of that so you can you can live an extra six months longer than everybody else before all the stores run out? Well, the, the kitchen is was was full of canned peaches when I was there. There was about yeah. six thousand cans of peaches. Um, it's ventilated in the in the house outside. If you look you look over in the, the parking lot, you'll see these vents coming up. So yeah. my guess is that they're. This guy, he, if he had the money to build this kind of palace, he certainly had the money to, to uh, provide for you know, yeah. uh, an actual nuclear attack. So there must be some form of uh, purifying air purifying system or something there. Right. But the thing is, you can't get anybody. Nobody really wants to live in an underground house. They yeah. can't sell it. They can't sell it. No. Nor can they really turn it into a museum because it's in the middle of a suburban neighborhood. You know. Yeah. Uh, so you have to you have to ask around and and if you have a film crew or something maybe they'll let you come in. That's they've always let me come in because mm. I ended up being friends with Tex. I knew Tex, and then I knew Maymay, and now I know the real estate agent who's trying to sell it. And uh, it's it's some um, owned by some president, friends for the preservation of the earth or something. Mm. Now own it. They're trying to unload it. It's for sale. You should, okay. You well, well, you've you've. You've attracted my interest in that bit. Uh, we've come to the end of your wonders. Thank you very much for, for joining us and or joining me for this uh, trip down your seven wonders. A fascinating uh, selection of wonders, if I may say so. Um, I have to choose the wonder of wonders from our list of seven, the one which struck me as particularly wonderful, as you described it on this podcast. And, you know, I was... I was pretty convinced I was going to probably choose the Yellowstone River in Montana because I'd love to go there. I admire your admiration of Catcher in the Rye, but I'm afraid 3970 Spencer Street at the last uh, in Las Vegas has won it simply because you've got a story that starts with your mate saying, oh, let's go and meet Muhammad Ali's daughter. And that's before you even get to the house. So, yeah. And this extraordinary uh, prospect. Yeah. And I hope somebody does buy it and do something interesting with it though i uh, i agree that i can't see what that interesting thing could possibly be <laughs> uh, uh, anyway thank you rich it was, uh, it's good to talk to you again um I've, I've bumped into you on qi from time to time uh, yeah. years ago and i noticed you i think you're the person who wins qi more often than than anybody and because uh, your technique is so clever because you don't sit you don't burble on making all the wrong answers which most of us do uh, when yeah. we guess on that you just wait and say something funny when you feel like it and yeah. leave the rest of people to burble on a great uh, a great tactic yeah sniper i'm a sniper yes yeah <laughs> though when, though winning that winning winning on that show is is not it's not like winning the Grand Slam in tennis, is it? No, I know. I know. It's not. maybe not the main thing, but it's something. Anyway, thank you very much. If you enjoyed listening to My 7 Wonders, it would be wonderful if you could rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform, site or provider you found us on. Uh, thank you for listening. Thank you to Rich Hall. Thank you. Goodbye. My Seven Wonders with Clive Anderson is a stack production in association with Alaska TV and powered by the ACAST Creator Network.